Well, yesterday was Palm Sunday, um, and, uh, and this is part of uh, Passion Week, Holy Week. And so when we start talking about this, what it is, is it's Jesus' last week of life, right? It's, it's initiated with Palm Sunday and uh, what we call the triumphant entry into Jerusalem as, as Jesus is, is really like pulling the veil back on who he is and what he came to do. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today and some truths that I want you to walk away from. And, and Jesus' last week is significant. If you look at the Gospels, one-third one third of your gospels focus on Jesus's last week of life. Now that's pretty significant when you consider Jesus was about 33 years old when he was crucified and his ministry lasted about three years. And out of three years, which is what, 156 weeks, one week consumes one third of our entire gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's 89 books um, and 29 of them on that final week. And so clearly, God had something there for us, right? Something that he wants to reveal. You can spend so much time studying it. And I encourage you to do this. And I encourage that on the podcast on Friday. Um, if, you, if you've never done it, go and chronologically read Jesus's final week of life and just get an idea of what that looks like and all the things that, that were taking place because they were so significant. But tonight's message is called Save, save Us. Say Save Us save us. And what I want us to focus on is misconceptions that we have about Jesus, um, misconceptions that, that we have about faith and, and, and about the church. And we want to begin to tackle some of those. And it's interesting to me that if you look at Jesus's final week and you look at Palm Sunday and what the Israelites thought Jesus had come to do, they had wild misconceptions, right? They, they didn't fully understand that, that what they expected to happen and what they expected to take place was completely different. And because it was different, it was actually part of the reason that eventually they went from crying out, save us, to crucify him. That in less than a week's time, their mindset changed so much because of this missed expectation that I had on Jesus in this final week. And so have, have you ever been in a situation where things didn't go the way that you wanted? It ticks you off, doesn't it? And so the Israelites were angry because they expected Jesus to come into Jerusalem and overthrow Rome because the Israelites, they'd been under occupation for so long. They had this misconception of the Messiah, the Savior, that he was actually going to be this warrior and he was going to come in and he was going to, again, throw out the intruders, crush their armies, deliver Israel and make them free. But that's not what happened at all. And so what, what really happened, I want you to do this. I want you to open your Bibles up to John, John 12. And so that's one of your gospels. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the final one. And we're gonna look at the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And so in John 12, um, verse 12, it says, the next day, the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. Hail to the king of Israel. Well, what had, what had taken place? I'll tell you, just about a week before this, Jesus had pulled back the veil on who he was. And um, he'd actually raised from the dead his friend, Lazarus. And so when he did that, he was no longer hiding that he was the Messiah. This was an incredibly public miracle. Before this, 
So many of his miracles ended with, don't tell anybody. That he impacted a life, shh, keep it a secret. But this final one was in front of everyone and people began to hear about it. And so as Jesus is coming for Passover, like this is God's chosen one. Hail to the king of Israel, praise God. The new King James says this way, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. And when you see Hosanna, um, which sometimes as a kid, I would, I would see that written and, and I had no idea what it meant, but it actually is a plea to God that simply means save us. And the people are crying, save us. Well, save us from what? From oppression, save us from the Romans, save us from occupation, save us, praise God, praise God. It continued, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it. Fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remember what had happened and realized that these things had been written about. They'd been written about in Zechariah 9.9, where it said, rejoice, O people of Zion, shout in triumph. O people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And so Jesus is coming into Israel, and it's a pilgrimage. People are walking into the city, um, but Jesus comes on this donkey riding, and, and the other gospels kind of give us more context as people were waving palm branches in recognition of him, the king, right? The savior, the messiah, which is why we call it Palm Sunday, laying out their coats, which is like laying out the red carpet for him as he comes in to Jerusalem. In verse 17, it said, many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him. They had, they had finally heard just of, of Jesus's great power right, the, the miracles that he'd done. It, there was no longer hidden because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. And, and because of this miracle with Lazarus and, and because of this taking place, um, the, the Pharisees and, and the Sanhedrin were, were now, they were in full-fledged mode to plot to kill Jesus. And, and this was kind of like the spark that ignited it all that would later lead to his arrest and crucifixion. But their understanding of the Messiah was wrong on both sides, right? The, the Israelites thought it was to free them from Rome and the Pharisees and religious leaders thought that he'd come to, to take their authority and their power, but both sides had it wrong. They had a, a misunderstanding. They, they didn't know what, what we have the opportunity of knowing now that, that Jesus came as a savior for all, savior from sin, not from occupation and, and deliverance, right? From, from what keeps us bound and what keeps us dead. And so they had this misconception. Now, maybe, maybe you're in here and you've had misconceptions. Um, I know for me that, that before all of this, I wasn't, I wasn't raised in church. This, this wasn't my scene growing up. You know, this was all very weird and very awkward to me at one point. Um, and, and I didn't understand what it was. I, I thought to be a Christian actually meant that I was entering into some type of bondage, 
right? That, that I would lose my identity, that I would lose my life, that um, I would just be stuck in some weird cult drinking Kool-Aid and wearing Nikes, you know? Um, I'm sure none of you had that kind of uh, impression before. Um, surely it's not too soon on that joke. It's been decades since that happened. Um, all the people that was born in the 80s, they know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> anyways, we, we have these misconceptions moving forward. Um, but maybe, maybe you fall into a different category. Maybe, maybe you thought that, that once you surrendered it, that all your pain and suffering would go away. And, and maybe you're just now into it. I, I remember a season of life where that, that's kind of the mode that I switched into. It's like, oh, it's, it's not a cult. It's not weird. Make, God's real. I'm seeing it. And, and as I pursue him, he's going to miraculously take away all my suffering, all of it, and, and everything will be great. And I'll just be incredibly blessed. And at every turn, I'll never struggle again. Maybe that's the misconception you had. And you're six months in and you're like, oh man, was I wrong. Life still sucks sometimes, right? And, and so maybe that's your misconception. Maybe you thought that Jesus would just be some kind of genie. And you're praying for you know, the house that you can't afford and the truck you should never drive and it's just not coming. And you're like, what is the deal here? I heard that one time that, man, all my wildest dreams are just a prayer away. Where's that at? Where's that God? And so tonight, I want us to look at some misconceptions, some things that we've bought into about Jesus, but I want to look at some truth. In order to combat our myths and misconceptions, we need a a clear picture of the real Jesus. And so tonight, we'll look at three truths that I believe will help bring us some clarity. That, that will help awaken us to truth, that will open our eyes to who God is. And so as we start tonight, I want, I want you to do this. I want you to open up your Bible to Matthew 16. Matthew's in your New Testament, right? Um, and it's the first book of the Gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Your Gospels tell about the life and the ministry of Jesus. And in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? So son of man was a term that that Jesus had endeared to himself. And if we're going to look at who Jesus is, we should probably look to Jesus for one of those answers, right? That that he's probably the one that gets it right, that, that gives clear indication of his identity, And it says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, Son of the living God. And so when we see the term Messiah, it comes from a Hebrew word that I can't pronounce, but means anointed one. And and a lot of times that can be translated to Christ. Everybody in here familiar with Christ, right? So Christ means the anointed one. And so point number one, we need to realize this, that Christ is his title. It's not his last name, right? We hear Jesus Christ. That's not a surname, that's a title. It means anointed one, right? That God had anointed him for a purpose. God had anointed him for a mission. An anointed one was someone with special God-ordained purpose. 
And so Christ signifies that Jesus was sent from God to be king and deliverer. King and deliverer. That, that when we see Christ, Messiah, it is deliverer. Well, deliverer from what? Well, for me personally, it was almost 20 years of addiction that God delivered me from that. He delivers us from the sins of our flesh, right? From, from bondage. That last song that, that we sang about, right? That, that sound mind. You, God, God can deliver us from, from the chaos of our, our thoughts, from, from lies of the world, right? He's, he's the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, chosen to, to save humanity from the depravity of our own sins. And so as it continues in verse 17, it said, Jesus replied, you were blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. But we miss it. We think Jesus Christ as just another man and, and just another name. And, and we miss his identity and how much of his identity is revealed in that, that simple title. That, that simple title reveals so much of who he is. And, and upon that truth, what truth? That he's the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God, right? That's what's revealed in that. Upon that truth, he would build his church, which is much more than a building. It's a body of believers joined together behind that simple truth that he was Christ. And, and, and upon that rock, his church is built. And the gates of hell will not prevail against this truth. And yet we lose sight of it. We lose sight of who he is, of his purpose, of, of his identity, of what he came to do, anointed one, chosen by God for a special purpose, to be king and deliverer, to be your king, to be your deliverer. deliverer. And how long have you let yourself sit, trapped, stuck, unable to move forward because you don't recognize who Jesus truly is and what he truly came to do. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans. As we look at our second truth tonight regarding Jesus, we're gonna be in Romans 10, verse nine. Romans was written by the apostle Paul. This was Paul, that was Saul. He had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Romans was a letter written to the believers in Rome. An incredible, an incredible letter. And in Romans 10, verse nine, it says this, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God. And it's by openly declaring your faith that you were saved. I love that passage. Um, it's one I've quoted frequently. And the reason I love it um, is this. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, say Lord. Lord. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart 
that Christ raised him from the dead, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And and we we often overlook that that first word, right? And and we we make statements of, well, God God forgives me, he does. And and we begin to to make statements and and declare truths of, uh, well, Jesus is my friend. And it's true, he is. And, and, and we begin to, to put him on the same level as us, right? He's my co-pilot. He's my buddy. He's my partner. And, and as we do that, Jesus' authority is diminished. So we openly declare that Jesus is Lord. Well, Lord signifies authority, right? He, he's elevated in a position above us, that we surrender to him, that we surrender to, to his, his will, his desire, that, that he's not your co-pilot, that, that he, he should be the pilot, the, the one leading, right? That, that he is Lord. We openly declare that he is Lord and believe in our heart that, that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved for it's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God, and it's by openly declaring your faith that you were saved. And so we have to recognize the authority of Jesus in our lives and need to understand that Jesus is Lord, not just Savior. And so often we stop at Savior. That, that seems to be the, the, whole, the whole goal, the whole show. And, and I, remember, I remember a time where that's what I believed too. And I surrendered to God and I raised my hand and I, and I said a prayer and I had confidence and reassurance and understanding that, that one day I would pass from this life and, and I wouldn't be damned. But I missed this, this whole part of he's meant to shape my life, that, that he's meant, meant to mold, lead, direct every step, every breath, that, that Jesus was meant to be more than a life preserver, that, that he was meant to be an authority figure in our lives. And so again, point number two, Jesus is Lord, not just Savior. I want us to do this. I want us to, to turn to Colossians, Colossians 1. Um, Colossians, again, like Romans, was a letter that was written by Paul. This was written um, to this particular church. And in Colossians 1, 15 through 16, it talks about the supremacy of Jesus, right? Jesus supreme above all. And so Colossians 1, 15, it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Simply put, Jesus is God in a body. So much more than some great teacher that lived or some extraordinary man that walked 2,000 years ago so much more than that, so much more than a rabbi, preacher, philanthropist, or any of that. Here we have Jesus Christ is the visible image of an invisible God, God in a body. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. That's you. That's me. Sounds like so much more than just my buddy, old pal. 
right? That, that it's somebody who I should submit to, that I should recognize as greater than me. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything, say everything. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and holds all creation together. Holds all creation together. And yet, we so adamantly try to convince him of what he should do for us and seldomly ask, God, Christ, Messiah, Lord, how can we serve you and follow you? Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. Say everything. So he is first in everything. Yet I know this so often in my life, he's second, third, or fourth in my decisions. First is me and what I want to do in the moment. Second is my wife who tells me how wrong I am. Third is Pastor Rick who tells me I should have listened to my wife, right? (laughs) And then finally, when I've made a mess of everything, I go ask Jesus what I should do. But but Jesus should be first in everything. First in our, our household, right? This so often we allow our kids' sports schedule to dictate all of this or, or the chaos of life and, and we, we won't have time to, to go to church for the next six months because we have this, that, or the other. Or, you know, it's getting warm. It's time to start hitting the lakes, right? We're gonna have to disengage from the things of God for a while so that we can put that first because you can't just go to the lake on Friday and Saturday It really needs to consume the whole weekend or you really didn't have enough fun, right? And so we begin to put him second or third, relationships, family, finances, whatever it is, but he's first in everything, in everything, because Jesus is Lord, not just Savior. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes who you were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and action. Yet now he is reconciled to you, uh, to himself, through the death of Christ and his physical body. As a result, He has brought you into his presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. That is, God has made you right. He was first before that. He was supreme. But especially in light of what he's done for us, we need to begin to recognize that he's so much more, so much more than Savior, that he's Lord of all. It wraps up in verse 23. It says, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it 
Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. That we have this wild misconception that, that Jesus was just about getting out of hell. And, and it, was, it was about reconciling us to God. It was about allowing us to have this relationship with the creator. And, and through all of that, we have to begin to recognize him as an authority in our lives. Stop submitting to everything that takes place in a sinful, broken, chaotic world and begin to submit to the things of God. My, my life changed dramatically. My recovery looked different when I began to recognize Jesus as more. When, when I took that, that hand raise and, and just began to, to really get in that place of surrender, right? Like, God, what can you do for me? What can I do for you? How can I follow you? We've got to begin to change our hearts and our minds. God wants so badly to move in your situation. He wants so badly to open your eyes to, to what could be. But in order for us to experience that, we've got to stop leading our lives and allow him to lead and recognize that Jesus is Lord, not just Savior. Not just Savior. As we, as we begin to close, as we move into our last point, I want, I want you to turn back to Matthew. We started in Matthew, right? That's the first book of our, our New Testament, and it's the first book of our Gospels. We're going to go back to Matthew, Matthew 26, verse 36, and it says this, um, just a little bit of context. This is, again, we're back in Jesus' final week, his final week, and this is actually Jesus' last night before being arrested. And so in Matthew 26, verse 36, it says this, then Jesus went with him to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch for me. The thing that was crushing Jesus, the thing that he was grieved about was the fact that he knew what was coming. That on this night, he would be handed over, that he would be arrested. He knew that he would be put on trial, that he'd be found guilty that he would be humiliated, spat upon, beaten, and whipped with, with a whip that was called a cat of nines, and it would rip flesh from his back, exposing bone and rib. And Jesus knew this. He knew that he would go from that point to being nailed on a cross, and that ultimately he would give his life and in, in that moment, he would be separated from God, his father, from, from the presence of God and, and suffer something more excruciating than any of us could ever imagine. And he was crushed with grief 
Again, it says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. In verse 39, it says, he went on a little further and bound with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will, say your will, your will to be done, not mine. Jesus knows what's coming. And he's God in a body, right? 100% God, but he's also 100% man. And as any of us would be facing death and such a brutal death, there would be some confliction inside. And, but even in this moment, he says, Father, if you can take this from me, if you can allow me to avoid this suffering, if there's any other way, God, I want that. But ultimately, Father, I want your will, not mine. And as we come into the church and as we come into relationship with, with Jesus and, and begin to grow in this, again, we, we fall into this misconception that everything that took place was just about us. We're incredibly self-centered and selfish people, or at least I am. And I, I so frequently want what I want. And, and, and at the cost of, of people around me, especially at the expense of my relationship with God. And, and I began to just ask God for things and to seek God for things with a complete disregard of, of what he may want or what he may be leading me to. And I make it all about me. Every prayer, every desire, every step forward. And in that mindset, I suffer because after decades of life, I've come to realize I'm really crappy at leading myself, that, that I, I make bad choices and bad decisions and I do it to the detriment of myself and to the people around me and, and yet I keep pushing forward. But the thing that we need to realize is that Jesus came to fulfill God's will not ours. And, and you may be in here tonight and you may have had it all backwards. And maybe you thought that Jesus was all about the, the nice car and the nice truck and he went to the cross so that you could live in a big house or so that you could not suffer. Je Jesus suffered so that you would never experience any pain or, or brokenness or loss. That, that's not... That's not what it was about. That, that Jesus went to the cross, again, not to fulfill your wish list, not to meet your every desire, but to meet your need, singular. That because of our sin, because of our brokenness, we were unable to be in relationship and presence with the Father that Jesus allowed himself to be separated from God so that we could be joined together with him, so that we could have mercy, grace, and forgiveness that would allow us to be in his presence, to be in relationship, to, to seek his will. And, and again, we make it so much about us. It was all about him. It was so that our choices, our lives, our desires, could ultimately glorify God.
And even Jesus, Son of God, the invisible, the visible image of an invisible God, he prays, I want your will to be done, not mine. And if God in a body, <laughs> Jesus Christ, prays and desires God's will above his own, how much more should we do the same? How much more should our prayers begin to reflect this? Lord, what would you have done here? How would you move? Lead me, direct me. He continued, said, then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed. And I love that. I can only assume, and it's speculation, that Jesus didn't get the answer he was looking for the first time, right? That Jesus said, no. Sorry, son, it's still the cross. And Jesus goes back a second time and says, my father, if this cup cannot pass or cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Your will, God. Not mine, not my desire, but Father, your will. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went and prayed a third time saying the same things. God, your will. I know that the road ahead is not easy. I know what I have to do. It's not gonna be enjoyable. It's not gonna be fun. But Lord, your will. And we have to begin to recognize this, push aside that misconception that it's all about you and, and begin to pray like that. God, I know my spouse is really ticking me off, but what would you have me to do? How would you have me to love my wife? How would you have me to lead my family? Lord, how would you have me to deal with my children? Lord, how would you have me to, to handle my finances? God, I, I know that this is what I see, and, but it's hard. Nobody else lives this way, but Lord, your will be done. What, what, what would you have me to do? We need to begin to recognize again that Jesus came to fulfill God's will, not ours. One last passage as we close. It's Romans 8.28. It's not in your notes, um, but it says this, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Say his purpose. His purpose for them. That's everything works together for the good of God, for God. And when we follow God, we submit to his will, we get to enjoy something better. But it's not about us. It's still about him. So I wanna encourage you this week as, as we approach the most significant event in history, when Jesus graced a broken people in a fragile body and willingly submitted himself to the cross, that we truly begin to reflect and recognize what it was all about. 
It was about so much more than giving you a get out of hell free card. It was about leading you to a better life, a life that's sole purpose and focus is on God and live for God according to his purpose. To recap tonight, number one, Christ is his title, not his last name. The anointed one, the Messiah, King and Lord. Number two, Jesus is Lord, not just Savior. Recognize his authority over your life and over your decisions. Number three, Jesus came to fulfill God's will, not yours. It's not a genie. <laughs> it's not about our wish list. It's about living lives that, that reflect God's desire for us. Our, our action steps tonight. One, read through Jesus' last week and each of the Gospels. Or like I said earlier, find a, a chronological account. Begin to look at the most significant event in our history, the most profound thing to have ever taken place. Begin to seek to understand it. And number two, surrender to the Jesus of the Bible, not the version that you think he should be. Seek to know and understand who he truly was and what he truly came to do. So all of this, every, every moment of our lives is meant for God, right? We're meant to glorify him. We're, we're his creation. We're meant to seek his will and we're meant to have relationship with him. And, and in order to do that, we have to surrender to Jesus. Again, we have to believe that he's Lord recognize who he was, believe in our hearts that, that he died for us. And so if you're in here tonight and you've never done that, you've never made that decision that, you've never made the greatest decision and you're ready tonight again to, to realize that you can't save yourself. You're ready to believe that, that God came in a body, that Jesus was the visible image of an invisible God and that he willingly laid down his life, sacrificed himself so that you could be saved. And you want to confess that faith, that recognition in who he is and make him Lord of all. If that's you, if you're ready for that tonight, here in just a moment, we're gonna close out. We're gonna have some people down front and they would love to pray with you and for you so you can make that decision tonight. And so if that's you, again, we wanna encourage you, make the greatest decision that you could ever make. And then maybe you're in here and you've done that before, but you've gotten off track and, and you wanna recommit tonight to, to come back home. And you just wanna, can, can I do that? Absolutely. If that's you, our, our same offer applies that here in just a moment, you, you can come down front and we would love to pray with you and for you. And then maybe there's just been something that, God's been dealing with you about and you feel like, man, I need to set that down. I've been holding on to that. It's been keeping God at a distance. I'm, I'm ready to surrender it all. Um, we want to extend an offer to come get one of our white chips. There's nothing special about these, but there's something special about when we act in faith, when we step out of our seat, when we come down and say, God, I'm surrendering this to you. And so if that's you, 
We want to encourage you to come down front. And then lastly, maybe you just need prayer. Prayer for anything at all. If you need prayer, we would love to pray with you. And so for any of those things, to give your life to Jesus for the first time, to recommit, to pick up a white chip, or just to receive prayer, we want to encourage you to to step out of your seat and come down front. If everybody would, if you'd stand to your feet as we close in worship.